0: Welcome to The Sound of the Hound. Series 2. The podcast about the early days of recorded sound. In it, we talk about the recording pioneers and artists who created the modern music industry over 100 years ago. We look at the sometimes ridiculous lengths they went to to capture sound and the technology they used in order to do it. We come from the point of view of spirited amateurs. Yes, we're very much armchair enthusiasts. And we play a little scratchy music along the way. This podcast comes to you with the support of the EMI Archive Trust, the Music and Technology Archive. This is The Sound, the sound
1: of the Hound. Hello and welcome to a bonus edition of The Sound of the Hound. I'm Dave Holly, And I'm James Hall. Today we tell the story of an extraordinary man and true sonic pioneer, Alan Bloomline, the
0: man who invented stereo sound. Let's say that again. The man who invented stereo sound. Scientists split the atom. Bloomline split sound. He also invented many other things, as we'll hear. But this invention, stereo, changed everything. It changed the way we listen. It changed the way that the devices we listen on were made. And it changed the way music was recorded. Dave, can you explain what stereo sound is? Back to basics, come on. I guess mono sound is when you have
1: one speaker... And all the sound comes at you from that one speaker, whether it's the voice, the, the the guitar, the drums, the bass, the keyboards. It all goes down, comes at you once, and it all sounds the same, no matter where you're standing relative to that. But stereo is where you you split the um, the, the, the the sound between two channels, and one channel comes out of one speaker, one comes out the other. Headphones, you've got one, two ears, so the logic is you take sound in from two places. So moving music, particularly onto two, um, into two channels, it comes into your head a bit like life comes into your head. Nice. And I, th- I think we come to a story later on, don't we, where how it's invented? It's invented at. Give you a sneak spoiler, but it's invented at a cinema. That's a, if, exactly. If, if, yes. if you if you're sitting in one place and it
0: comes out of the speakers, you can't tell when somebody's. If you're you, sitting on the right yeah. and, and someone's talking on the left of yeah. the screen. It, it, it doesn't make any it. sense. Yeah, it, it comes sense.
1: straight out the middle. Whereas if you can have it going left and right, you get a sense of movement. Yeah, yeah. It's more dynamic stereo sound.
0: And the stereo became a byword, didn't it, for the devices we listen on? Oh, we're listening on. Yeah, we have a stereo at home. I'll stick it you on know, the stereo. Certainly, when I was growing it up. Yeah. Yeah. I still call it the stereo. Well, you're quite old, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, over about 15 years old yes, <laughs> pot, pot kettle yeah. um, over Bloomline's uh, lifetime he, he received 128 patents and was considered one of the greatest engineers and inventors of his time he sadly died in June 1942 aged just 38 So that's so young, it's so young. Mm. when a Halifax bomber on which he was travelling crashed in Herefordshire
1: yeah so th- this episode it's told via an interview with, with his son um, Simon who, who himself is in his 80s now. It's it's a fascinating story. When we talked to Simon, we went right back to the very beginning of Alan's childhood to ask... Um, no, sorry, to Simon's childhood. Um, well, Alan's too, I think we went well, all actually, the way back. Yes, we go back to Alan's to, to childhood. Alan's, as told by as Simon. As told by yeah. Simon. Then we go back to Simon's childhood <laughs> when Alan was his dad looking after him. But please bear in mind, Simon is a little bit frail, and there are quite a lot of technical terms, you know... Alan was a scientist and Simon is a scientist. So we've, we've tried to decode it so that we understand it. And if we understand it, we think hopefully you
0: guys will. But we hope you enjoy this incredible storytelling. It seems that as a young lad, I mean, even a, 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 a wee boy, Alan was, was something of a, of a budding electrical engineer. Uh, here's Simon. Somebody had written an invoice
2: out for um, mending the doorbell and he put Alan on. You, you can hardly see it, Alan, because he didn't do much writing until he had to. He liked to be read to, so his reading wasn't good. And so, uh, but but, but he, he mended the doorbell. Oh, so he, he repaired it. So and that was like an early. Example he of was yes. Engineering oh, scale. the invoice which I've got. Okay. Uh, is headed um, electrical engineer and that invoice will come here one day to the trust. Uh, I intend to leave all my oh, paperwork that I have of my father's to the trust. But he, he went on and uh, he was an engineer born uh, when he was eight his mother came in and saw her friend's sewing machine totally in pieces <laughs> on the table. as <laughs> a horror, of course, it got put together and it worked. So, so that was him. He'd taken that it apart, was him yeah. doing
1: engineering things as soon as he could. And this this enthusiasm continued as he grew up. Young Alan started writing proper papers about electrical engineering. I don't know so much about his successes at
2: school, but having done this two years there, he joined the telecommunication lab. And within a year, he and his professor at the lab that he was there helping, uh, wrote a paper and presented it to the IEE. It was sent back to them and said, yes, you can have this paper read, and as long as you correct the English and things in spelling in it. And it went on to win an IEE premium.
1: Oh wow! So uh, that, that would be fresh out of college. Uh, oh, it?
2: fresh out. He was still a student, really, and they his choice for his premium were three books on electrical engineering, which unfortunately my mother put in store in an underground
0: store, and they don't exist now. But these were different times. And Simon says that his father, despite all his achievements, faced discrimination due to his surname. From the lab, he, uh,
2: he applied to standard, what is now standard telephone and cables, and he was rejected. The Mac, the uh, person there, uh, rejected him because he had a Jewish name. Blumlein was a Jewish yes. name... And he rejected it, and he was told that if he didn't take Bloomline he would be rejecting one of the cleverest uh, students coming out of telecommunications. Mm -hmm. And he went on to work at uh, Standard Telephone and Cables, and his first day there... There were three of them. They uh, People would say to me and tell me that you usually get a joker in the laboratories, but that day three joined because he um, joined with J.B.K., his great friend, they went on, it was his best man and my godfather. And that was two. And then there was Fatty Latimer. Was that his his
1: official first name? No,
2: no. Uh, Latimer was the third. And uh, these three (laughs) were in the lab, experimenting. Accidents happen, uh, a standard resistance box... Uh, started smoking one day, so they took it out on the balcony. I mean, this valuable piece of equipment, they'd heated up. I don't know whether it was uh, true to resistance,
1: but they they cooled it down. So what was Alan Bloomline like as a person? We tend to think of engineers as serious-minded people, boffins, and of course they are, but Simon says that his father had a fun, mischievous sense of humour. He liked parties and things, and there are
2: a few photographs of fooling around and always the Joker, I think. But he was, could be very serious as well. And my mother said he wouldn't uh,
0: stand fools lightly. Alan started his career at a division of the Western Electric Company, which made telephones, and I think was part of AT and T. Yeah, it was. It changed its name a few times and became known as the Standard, sorry, as Standard Telephones and Cables, or STC. When he was there, Bloomline, along with a man called John Percy Johns, designed an improved form of loading coil, technical term. Kind of think I know what it means. A loading coil which reduced cross lines on long-distance telephone lines. Uh, But in 1929, Alan left the telephone company and joined Columbia Graphophone Company.
2: At um, Standard Telephone Cables, he worked on telephones and took a patent out on telephones there and then worked with uh, them. They laid telephone cables across France and others I've got some of the routes and in Switzerland in particular I've worked this out myself because he's got a picture of a crocodile locomotive which he took in 19 I think 27 would it be uh so he was there and They had to lay the cables through valleys because the train went and the road would go through the valley. The trains were working on 16 and two-thirds cycles AC and this caused interference and he tried to measure the cross capacitance and other things between telephone lines, and he thought the equipment he had was pretty useless because he couldn't get any accuracy. So he designed a piece of equipment and it
1: became his famous AC bridge. This move from uh, telephones to music opened up so many opportunities, uh, as we'll find out. Somebody suggested
2: that my father should uh, be interviewed, and he was, and he, he sounded very interested. He said, I'm interested, but the trouble is, Mr Schoenberg, I don't think you'll be able to afford me. So <laughs> Schoenberg said, what, what do you want? And he upped it. it. So Alan Blumlein joined, Isaac Schoenberg, and, very importantly, the engineer there, who was really a mechanical engineer already at Columbia, Holman. And that's why the microphone that came from the two of them is known as the HB mic, and it's down as the Holman Blumlein mic. And uh, my mother always thought it was because my father said hell's bells often and got hot and bothered. But that's the real reason that,
0: that that's, it's there on the pattern. Now, it was around this time when all these episodes of the, the, these two podcast series start to come together in a quite sort of goose bumpy way. Because in 1931, Columbia Graphophone Company merged with the Gramophone Company. To form Electric and Musical Industries or EMI, EMI, <laughs> at which a senior manager from the Gramophone Company was, of course, Fred, Fred Geisberg. Geisberg. There we go. So these these worlds emerging, they would have known each other, wouldn't they?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, they must have known each other because um, Geisberg was in and out of Abbey Road, yeah. and so was uh, Bloomline. And when Bloomline does his stereo thing, he does a lot of tests at Abbey yeah. Road, and Fred would have been in and out all yeah. the time with artists. Amazing. They must have known each other.
2: He also, of course, designed the cutter for cutting the uh, disc. And that was part of his design there. And went on to be taken to the, for installed at Abbey Road.
0: He also works on moving coil microphones that were used in AMI and also by the BBC uh, at Alexandra Palace. But devising new methods of cutting discs and new types of microphone were nothing compared to what Alan Blumlein invented next.
2: All that equipment was there, and of course it was still there when his stereo equipment was bought in 1934. So all those years before the Beatles, <laughs> there was stereo recording in the EMI... Uh, studios uh. because
1: that's what I know him most for Is well two things we we will come to one of the others later on I think but stereo recording is is what he's sort of venerated
0: for for
2: oh yes but that was in December he took a patent out in December 1931 and it was granted in 33 and People have ex- tried to explain to me why it wasn't a great success then because he, d- he made stereo. One of the reasons was that you had shellac in those days. and so that was the material? That the the material that was pressed together with carbon black to make the discs. Uh, and it wasn't really very good. You, you were using steel needles in those days on in the groove. And for his stereo records, he was cutting hill and dale and lateral. But um, he wrote into his patent that it would be much better to cut it 45 in the side. But he couldn't do it. The the shellac wouldn't take it. But of course, it became a standard system of cutting.
1: So he could see what needed to be done. It was. Oh, he could. Yes, available. he yeah. can see what needed to be done. I, I I guess also in the home, you'd have needed two horns to that to play the stereo, and people that, wouldn't have that two is. Horns.
2: Yes, you would need two loudspeakers, and you've hit the nail on the head. The distal side were objecting to one electrical loudspeaker, and in fact I've got two
1: electrostatic loudspeakers, but my wife won't allow them downstairs. This idea of splitting sound was um, inspired by a rather everyday event. There is uh, a story. My mother...
2: I think it was when they were engaged, actually. He was in a cinema with her, and, of course, they had a fixed loudspeaker behind the screen, and wherever the person was on the screen the sound would come out of that loudspeaker and some of the screens were very big. And he said to uh, my mother that if a blind man was here, he wouldn't know where the person was on the screen because, I think, everybody was talking over there. And and, um, I have an idea that can make the sound travel with the person who's speaking on the film.
1: So so stereo was trying to solve the problem of talkies having a a uh, low speaker.
2: In the patent, and I've read it many times, and I've just written up about it for the City of London Phonograph and uh, Gramophone Society. They... They talk a lot. It talks a lot about uh, sound on film because of his idea, but it brings in everything else as well: recording uh, uh, for uh, discs, and uh, wireless, and other ideas. And so he he made films down at Hayes. Oh, here. Yes, Yes, he made films uh, on the railway line here, and there's that famous train going through the station taken from the central research labs. And he had a fire engine going across a field behind here, and he got the Hayes players uh, to make a little film uh, moved the orchestra. Uh, somebody was sitting uh, one side, this is how the film goes, the, the actors were sitting one side of the screen in this restaurant and the orchestra was playing and they objected, it was too loud. So you heard the sound moving over <laughs> the Screens, so all those were made, and he did it with two tracks on the optical system that was on film. Then
1: two, two tracks uh, on the film. There
2: are two tracks
1: on the film for the audio.
2: For the audio, and um, when Dolby first bought out their system donkeys years later, uh, for a stereo on a film
0: like that,
2: um, they could play his film on their
0: equipment. Alan didn't stop there. The medium of television was taking off, so of course he got involved in that too. EMI and formed
2: because gramophone company, which was already here at Hayes, joined up with Columbia. And so he actually did the stereo patent. He finally wrote it while he was working in central research labs. And um, he came over and worked in the lab and had his own laboratory, of course. And HMV... We're already working on a mechanical system of television. It should be explained that uh, Baird made uh, a, a crude, and it was crude, I'm um, not being unfair, system of television. That's
1: John Logie Baird.
2: John Logie Baird. And it was based on the mechanical principles and a revolving disc with holes moving in and out. And HMV had done some work, and it was decided by the board of EMI that they would go in, and they had an arrangement with RCA in America that they would exchange information. They were both developing... Uh, Swarikin came over and uh, I know my mother met him, he came to their house in Orderly Road and had dinner. So uh, my father was very aware of what Sorokin was doing, and uh, so they went on. And EMI brought in some superb people <coughs> to join my father and other engineers there uh, uh, already. Among which was oh, I'll have to tell you the name in a minute. You can cut this out. <laughs> uh, he was came down. People came down from Cavendish Laboratory. So he he worked with physicists and engineers, and it was a whole team. There were superb glass blowers. And he actually did a patent on glass.
1: I, I, what, what's fascinating to me, I, this is the bit I probably know least about, this, this, this television period. Oh. But just how cutting edge it was. Yeah. You know, oh. they're, they're having to make the glass, I'm guessing for the cameras... Oh, for and, and, uh, and the screams uh, the results,
2: for the tube, the chimney tube, ME tube yeah. in the, and more. Oh, because so
1: they had to blow the the, the actual. Oh tubes. yes, wow. uh,
2: they had glass blowers blowing there, and uh, they they were very skilled, and they had to
1: integrate with the engineers, and the engineers had to integrate with that. Simon speaks very evocatively of his father, doesn't he? Just just listen to this clip. He always smoked a pipe. Your your father? Yes. He
2: smoked a pipe. And there is a notebook here in the trust that smells when you open it. You can smell the tobacco. And I was here with somebody doing research and using the notebook and he handed it to me. And I said, that isn't just tobacco, that's Balkan Sobrani, 1934 notebook, and you can still smell the Balkan. That, that I know was... he smoked Balkan Sobrani because he used the tins to keep different in his toolbox at home. He would have different things in different tins.
0: That is such a poignant story. It really is. Technology at this time was really moving on a pace, wasn't it?
2: The Emitron camera was the first real camera and the first outside broadcast was done with an
1: Emitron camera. Back in the nineteen thirties, health and safety wasn't what it is today. Being an engineer required a good deal of personal jeopardy. It was the aerial was on top of the Alexander Tower
2: there. Oh, wow. Uh, and became the symbol for the news. But he was up there and he dropped the pipe out of his mouth. So he came all the way down, got in his car, drove to the tobacconist, bought a new pipe, stuffed the tobacco in and went up the aerial again.
1: I, I think these days, health and safety, I don't think he'd be oh, allowed to do that, oh, would Oh,
2: health and safety would take most of the system out. I mean, uh, you know, uh, awesome. I was there at Alexander Palace one day after the war, and I was at the uh, desk where if you just flick that switch, you'd turn the whole lot off anyhow. Uh, I don't think I'd be allowed near it these well, days. The whole broadcast system would oh, yes. turned
1: off. <laughs>
2: There was one switch up there on the thing that switched the transmitters off. He also worked on the transmitters and bits like that. But the actual equipment was built by Marconi, so the system was known as the Marconi MI television system. But before it even started, we had a 405 line set in the house. It was a nine-inch thing. And my mother would uh, be phoned up and said, Doreen, would you look at the screen a moment, turn it on, and what can you see Uh, I can see dots on your tie today. So my mother was used as part of the test uh, equipment from Ealing to Hayes. And my father would ask her what uh, he would tickle, tickle bits and then see what she
0: could see. Now, Dave, if you asked me what a long tail pair is, (laughs) I'd have said it's a type of bird. You know, some kind of twitching uh, twitcher language, Uh, but it's not, is it? It's another of Alan Blumlein's probable inventions. What is it? Um, A long tail. Yeah, his name's on the patent. Um, A
1: long tail pair is a form of differential amplifier. Now, tell me exactly what that is. I don't know, but it's a form (laughs) of amplifier. I really don't know, I'm afraid. But I think it's explained in the next clip. The cable. Are we are we talking about television?
2: Television yeah. cable and the long tail pair is the predecessor of just about every input for amplifiers these days. They've tickled it and called it other things, but the long tail pair and that went on to be used in Turing's design of the AC computer
0: at its time, the fastest electronic computer in the world. There was a touch of magic in what Alan invented too, wasn't there? I mean, Simon here talks about this wonderful-sounding sort of ghostly special effect that Alan was involved in.
2: They then went on to develop bits on television. And in 1938, my father developed a system... So a person could be there with his hand out and fairies would be standing on the hand.
1: On screen? On the... uh, for the viewer, yes. Of course, at the end of the 1930s, the war broke out. EMI and its factories and expertise were used for munitions, but more importantly for secret inventions that could help with the war effort. But people like Alan Bloomline, people who were experts in electrical engineering and highly intelligent progress junkies
0: also started developing these ideas themselves. And the big issue in the Second World War was the airborne fight and radars. EMI was kept out
2: to begin with. Very few. Uh, they had to use the government and the that were developing the radar, the civil servants, kept, the government kept uh, most of the uni, um, manufacturers out. I think they had to use GC because they were developing the Magnetron and others. And, of course, my father's work was being used because they used the television receivers and they they developed uh, chain-low uh, which needed these enormous aerials and um, was restricted in its uh, use. And they kept uh, people like my father out. But he, at EMI, with uh, E.L.C. White, L.C. White he was known as, uh, not to his face, Doctor White. L- LC, was, as in the E.L.C. Woman's name, yes, yeah. he he E.L.C. L-C. E.L.C. Yeah, yeah. White. Yeah. And who was El- Who was he? He was uh, uh, one of the uh, scientists at EMI, and worked with my father on a lot of things. And he will come into the story in a minute. He went. Oh with my father, with the EMI radar system. My father, with Elsie White and one or two engineers, developed their own radar system independently in in EMI.
1: Why did they do that? What, What triggered them to create a radar system?
2: Well, it's probably... Uh, of sheer frustration that they weren't allowed in. So, how does the radar, the H two S, work? Chap on in his book, but he's written <laughs> uh, on, on there. Professor Hughes of University College, um, and Bystable has the transmitter here and the receiver there. Se- separate transmitters and that's the basis of it. Uh, in radar as most of it and um, as the system, the transmitter pulse goes out and the the reflection comes back and the two are separated. And that's what happens in a bulk of radar. And he had one transmitter and three receivers. They all interconnected, but they're separated. But by using the mass between the timing for the signal out and the timing when it arrives there, rise there, he could get both the azimuth and the LF. Ele- the um, direction
0: of the plane. A lot of Alan Blumlein's work was hugely beneficial, but it was also shrouded in secrecy.
2: And he also was using stereo on sound locators. The soldiers would sit there with earphones on and point these cones... Up there, and they would get the maximum sound and the thing. And he picked that up electrically, got the two signals, and, and then so they were already doing this
1: listening and trying. Oh, to, yes, yes, that was so it. So he was trying to replicate that. Using oh, he well, he
2: knew that this thing. I mean, we did it in the first world war with concrete domes, fixed domes, and. And they were listening. And they were listening, and they could hear a plane coming. Yeah. But he couldn't get much more information out of his concrete parabolic uh, reflector.
1: So presumably he would, he would have to sign the official secret act? Or if, if there was oh, such I'm a sure thing point, he'd have yeah. signed
2: that years before because they were making
1: other bits for equipment in EMI. What Alan did had a significant impact on the outcome of war father being brought in
2: earlier two uh, historians have written now that there would have been thousands of lives saved in the bombing of london and other cities because they needed um, chain home high uh, they had chain home low needed chain home high which was other uh, frequencies but the what, what, what would that? How would that have saved lives? Because they could have identified what was coming in much earlier. They were they couldn't see the planes for things. So they'd have,
1: they'd have seen the planes and then uh, been able yes. to shoot them down, basically. Uh,
2: yes, and they could have been out there waiting for them and have other defence systems. But the, this has been said by Prof Burns, who wrote one of the two biographies of my father, and also in another history book on radar, looking at all ten different radars, people after the war were told that Britain invented radar, and... Of course, they no more invented radar than the other nine countries that were working on radar during the war. They invented bits on radar and but not the whole radar system. Simon says what his father did actually helped to end the war. The ministry were working on what is now known as h2 s and my father got pulled into that because somebody quite rightly said a team at the ministry must design this system and EMI got the contract to design it independently. But, of course, they crossed over and my father led the team.
1: What, what is H2S?
2: Now, H2S is bombing without seeing, was the general term for it it was fitted in a plane and it looked at the ground the radar and from the information they could work out speed the speed of the plane it's been developed and it was used right up to the falklands war but um it was bombing without seeing
1: but on 7th of June 1942, tragedy struck. During a secret trial of the HS2 airborne radar system, a Halifax bomber carrying a team including Alan Bloomline crashed at Welsh Bignor in Herefordshire. Everybody on board was killed.
2: They took off from Defford Airfield. Uh, Cutts, who I've mentioned before, told me years later I couldn't wait for the plane to take off. So I got on a bike and cycled down to the officer's mess for a cup of tea, (laughs) and that saved Cut's life. All 11 on board, uh, the plane died, and this year, uh, we unveiled, my brother, I, and the son of one of the pilots in Herefordshire, unveiled a memorial stone which has all 11 names on. And although it's got my mother's quote on and uh, she wouldn't go to the Y Valley where the plane crashed, Um, she went finally a year or so before she got us, almost tricked us into getting her along the road there without asking. And she said, if you've got to die, it's a beautiful place. And that's now on the memorial stone to the whole crew, alongside the river Y, and almost on the spot where the uh, plane crashed.
0: Sadly, Alan would never know just how important his work on creating stereo sound would be
2: I think he by 1958 when it came out in this country
1: yeah.
2: he he that was from 1931 to 1958 it didn't come out he would have worked on a whole lot of ideas of people people ask me this vague question that you asked me I don't know what he would have made I discussed the one of the reasons it didn't go into the house already was the distal side objecting to electrical loudspeakers in the house. Two of them, they, they had a great job selling the electrical system to the distal side, and two of them, it just doesn't fit in with the furniture, for, you know, a <laughs> lot of ideas.
1: So what does Simon remember of his father? He was a young lad when he died.
2: Memories of my father. I can remember him mainly uh, around the age of six. When we went back to London, he'd sent my mother, my brother and myself down to my grandparents, my mother's parents, Uh, in Cornwall, when the bombing started. When they stopped bombing, he thought we should come back to Ealing, and we did. And by then, uh, we were in the ridings, not in the house that um, I mentioned before. And uh, one vivid memory of him, I was digging a mine in the garden, there was builder's rubble. It was a newish house. Uh, there was builder's rubble. and Amazing red colored It probably ground up London brick. But I saw these as mining layers and I was down in the hole and suddenly my father appears up above and what am I doing? So I said, I'm digging a mine. Oh, that's good. He then pulled out the watch, the famous watch that he was presented with in 1934, and looking at the second hand, he said, I want you to count in seconds, one, and he looked at the second hand and did it, and then from the mind came my voice counting in seconds, so that was a training point. I've, I mentioned the speedway and how that picked up the electrics. Also, while we were up there, because this is when he was killed, while we were up there, only weeks after the story, um, he took me down to the Park Royal Shunting Yard. He'd always already given me a love of trains, and he explained the hunt system, and I loved the little narrow-gauge loco. Well, it wasn't narrow-gauge, small loco, industrial loco, coming out from the Guinness, and we, I watched how it took the wagons and joined so they, up. They
1: made Guinness in Park Royal. Oh! They? That's right, yes. There was the Guinness factory. factory,
2: Oh, you could smell it on days that the wind (laughs) was in the right direction.
0: There are other poignant things too.
2: He wrote a letter to me in 1940, when I was four and a half, congratulating me on the models that I made in Meccano. And... He drew two cranes, so I had to know the difference between a jib crane and a derrick crane. Oh, how lovely. Uh, beautiful. Uh, I've still got the letter, and we read it out. Well, I got Karen to read it out. Uh, that's the chairman of your trust uh, in the House of Commons, because I would have broken down reading it, because he used to write to my mother in Cornwall when we were down there every day. And he uh, wrote to me sometimes instead, just to write and tell me things. And this letter tells me that uh, he's working there and he's got a little camp bed uh, which he puts up in the corner of his office. And he ends this letter, one day we might be able to make models together.
1: Still, Simon remembers details that were not in the public domain at the time.
2: He was staying in Tewkesbury, in the hotel in Tewkesbury, and went along, got in this plane, and they reckoned one of the tappets on the starboard outer engine was the outer engine, uh, hadn't been tightened. It dropped into the cylinder. It caused it to heat up and ignited the fuel coming in. And that lit the um, engine. And all 11 died. And uh, these photographs which are available of the crash, uh, the actual engine. Uh, There's nothing there. And, of course, Lovell came down and grabbed the magnetron.
0: Indeed, the government kept the crash secret in case it gave the Germans any sense of the upper hand.
2: That was Churchill. He put a a D notice on. The Evening Standard took no notice of the D notice and actually announced it, but it was a little, little... but he didn't want Hitler to have the satisfaction of knowing that he died. So here he was, he died with 128 patents to his name and he got no obituary whatsoever because of the D notice. Um, There was a, a service in the parish church here for all three of the uh, Brown and Python. Uh And my father had a service over at um,
1: Golders Green, the crematorium. There is one birthday gift that Simon particularly remembers. For my sixth
2: birthday, he built the most magnificent thing, a board with every type of wheel and gear, and on, and electric motor, which I plugged a a, um, wireless transformer to get the 20 volts, which was really meant for valves and things, the low voltage in the wireless. Um, I used to plug that into the mains, and we had the most advanced plug, too, It was the first one with a really uh, big earth terminal uh, and it stopped you putting other plugs into the sockets. But uh, at six in those days, to allow a boy to plug into, but he thought nothing of it.
0: Wow. So this is quite a story, it really is.
1: What a life. What a man. But Simon doesn't think his father gets the recognition he deserves.
2: He doesn't get the recognition for the, the valve used in Turin's ACE computer. I, I, I've doubled up, but uh, the valve is the long tailed pair. And all the ANDs, NANDs, and other circuits in uh, uh, Boolean algebra. That was used in the uh, computer were his. You can produce uh, an AND and an AND gate with long-tailed piers. I
0: suppose this was an era when heroes, heroes, it was a different concept, wasn't it? It wasn't. It wasn't so much a public, a public thing, perhaps.
1: Well, you were at war. You were keeping things well, secret. Course, absolutely. You? Um,
0: but that's the, that's the the let
2: this. Uh, was the ace computer was put forward it was the fastest electronic computer in the world but he got no recognition in that because they didn't realize what it was in Uh, for just to mention for your use the long-tailed pair Uh, my father invented for the uh, television cable that was being laid between Alexander Palace and uh, the, London for the coronation. And it became used in the coronation of George VI. The
0: There's an in- interesting nugget about his father too.
2: There, And there would be coronations to come. Uh, and 12 people signed the official coronation album or what to the that people could buy to showing what was happening in the coronation. He wasn't there, but he was in central London seeing what was happening on the system. I must be one of the very few people alive today, if not the only one, who've seen two coronations on television. <laughs> I was a year and a day, but my father realised the significance of me seeing.
1: Despite Simon's talk of his father perhaps not being a name that everybody knows, a few things have happened. Back in 1977, a blue plaque from the Greater London Council commemorating
0: Bloomline was erected at his former home in Ealing in West London. And in 2015, another plaque was put up outside the door of Abbey Road Studios, Commemorating Anna's invention of stereo sound, but perhaps the biggest accolade happened
1: in 2017, when Alan was awarded a posthumous Grammy. A Grammy. That's right, a Grammy. Over to Simon. Charles
2: knows all about that because he went out to represent the family in February, at the uh, when the 80 different Grammys were awarded for you know, um, country and Western music and things. And then in July, they had another award system on Broadway at the Beacon... um, Was it Beacon Hotel on Broadway? And next to the theatre, there's the Beacon Theatre there. And I was able to go up on the stage and receive this Grammy, which is given by the trustees of the uh, Grammy.
0: That sounds incredible, doesn't it? How amazing. As does the speech that Simon gave.
2: ...came on of the uh, Grammy group, and he was carrying... Uh, my father's award and we were called up and I went up with the three sons and he gave it uh, presented it to me and I made the shortest speech of the evening (laughs) I I thanked the um, trustees for uh, awarding this and presented it to me And then I said, I've waited 75 years for this moment, and held it
1: out and said, Daddy, this is yours. And that's all I said. Wow. So there we have it. The story of one of recorded music's great pioneers,
0: Alan Bloomline, as told by his own son. This is living history. And with just two links in the chain, as it were, it's the closest we've got to Fred Geisberg so far in The Sound of the Hound.
1: Yeah. What what a man Alan Bloomline was. What an inventor.
0: What a life and what a legacy. Let's end with a tribute that Alan's grandson, also called Alan, put on Instagram on June the 29th, uh, which was the day Alan Senior was born in 1903. The post lists Alan's achievements. The inventor of Stereo, the Marconi slash EMI 405 line TV system, and the inventor of the H2S airborne radar. 128 patterns, and there's a photo of Alan on this post, and above it Just one word. Genius. Genius.
1: That's it for us. We hope you've enjoyed this bonus episode of The Sound of the Hound and it wraps up series two. We hope we'll be back soon. Goodbye. Goodbye.
0: The Sound of the Hound was edited by Andy Hetherington. For more details on the topics discussed in this episode, visit soundofthehound.com. Or follow us on Twitter on at the sound of the H1 or on Instagram on the sound of the Hound.